We're in First uh, Kings chapter seventeen. First Kings chapter seventeen. As I said uh, before, if you're here for the first time, we've been preaching through the book of First Kings. I invite you to grab one of these out in the lobby. There's actually some back there as well. It's a devotional for you to study through First Kings as we preach through First Kings. Uh, we're getting pretty close to the end, uh, but you don't need to fret because we'll start Second Kings in the spring. So um, anyway, uh, if you have a Bible, would you open up with me to First Kings seventeen and stand? I'm going to read 1 Kings 17 to us, and um, let us get an understanding of what's going on. After I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. And of course, you're thanking the Lord to be so kind to give us his word. Of course, did not have to do that at all. He says he's kind enough to give us his word. But also, when you say that, let that serve for you as a means to say, the Lord, the, the things you teach me this, this morning, I want to say yes to, I want to obey. So, starting at 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe of Gilead said to Ahab, who was the king, by the way, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink of the brook I have commanded, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. After a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you. So he rose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks and called to her and said, Bring me a little water in that vessel that I may drink. And she was going, um, she was going to bring it. And she called, and he called her and said, "Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand." And she <coughs> said, "The Lord, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked but only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. Now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die." And Elijah said to her, "Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make a little cake." Of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel: the jar of the flour shall not be spent, and the oil, the sorry, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The flour was not spent, neither did the um, jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Verse seventeen. After the son of the woman and the mistress of the house became, after this, the son of the woman and the mistress of the house became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God, that you have come to me to bring my son to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper room where he lodged, and he laid him on the on his own bed, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, why have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he was revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down to the upper chamber, into the house, and from the upper chamber into the house, and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord is in your mouth. Is true. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. You can have a seat. 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you so much for your kindness. We pray this morning as we study your text that you would send your Holy Spirit now and open our minds and hearts to be taught by your Holy Spirit to understand not just the text, but to be able to see and understand how they testify about Christ and how they lead us to a greater understanding of who Christ is and what he's done for us. I pray for myself, Lord. I pray that you would give me um, the ability to teach your word correctly and rightly divide it, um, that you would use me this morning uh, for everyone in the room, including myself, to be convicted where we need to be convicted and comforted and to have our eyes open to see Christ and that we would be thankful for how good you are to us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, uh, the theme of chapter 17 is the word of the Lord, the, what the word of the Lord does uh, and how, it, how it's used by this prophet to go and proclaim. I'll, I'll let you see that. You can see in verse 24, notice what the woman says at the very end, what we just read. And the, and the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and here it is, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. And so uh, the writer of 1 Kings is want us to see that the theme of this chapter, the theme of what he's trying to do here, is that the word of the Lord is true and it's good. If you go back to verse 1, it's the same thing, but uh, he's using it, he's telling us that, or showing us that, by King on the prophet. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe, of Gilead, said, as the word of the God, whom I stand, and he makes this proclamation. So you have a prophet who functions as <coughs> delivering the word, and then at the very end you have this widow saying, I know that the word is true. So, um, as we said, on, on bookends, they help us see and explain the middle. And the bookends are highlighting for us the prophet who delivers the word of God and how by the end of the, of the chapter, the widow is saying she understands that um, the prophet delivers the true word of God. And so the word is the key for us as we go forward and try to understand. But um, the word in, in context, uh, it, while we agree with that, there's something going on in the middle, all the things that are happening and and the culture at the time that helped us understand what the word is combating. The word is combating in this particular time the rampant idolatry um, that's happening. Uh, as we know, as because if you were here last week, we studied the nine different kings. Kind of as we went through the the lineup, we had Asa hit third, who was who was pretty good, but the rest of them were all pretty terrible. And as we finished. With uh, the ninth king, if you remember, the, the description that was given of us of Ahab is like, he's the worst ever. There's never been anybody better than uh, worse, better, worse than him ever. And he was also married to Jezebel, and he served Baal. You can see that in verse 31. He served Baal, verse 32. He erected an altar for Baal. Um, and then you can also see in verse 33, uh, this is the previous chapter of just how terrible it was. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him. So we know that he was the worst king ever. You can see that in 30. He did what was evil more than anybody else for him, and he, he provoked the Lord to anger. So you have in context this horrible king who is alive at the time where Elijah comes. And so there's rampant idolatry happening. And so um, to, to set us up, 
to understand how 3,000 years ago, rampant idolatry, where they're practicing worship for Baal, is not really much different than today, um, just different idols. I want to give a quote here from um, Tony Marita. He says, we live in a similar time in which people worship a little bit of everything, but not the living God exclusively. That's not what was, that's, that's what was happening then. That's the same thing that happens now. A little God, a little horoscope, a little TBN, a little pop psychology, a few conspiracy theories, alien zombies, new age and naturalism, and more. They may want God at their death, but they live every day as functional naturalists or materialists. That means functionally the way they live their life is just they're just a naturalist or materialist. They don't think of that there is a God. As a result, twisted theology, immorality is normalized in a day just like in the days of Elijah. He lived in a day just like ours where people call evil good and good evil. So um, we live in a similar culture that they lived. Lots of differences, no doubt. Um, but in the time of Ahab, Ahab and Je Jezebel, rampant idolatry. And same thing with us, just different idols. And so the, uh, the answer then, of course, is in combating this idolatry, defeating this idolatry, is the word of God. Um, and so we see that that's the Lord's plan in 1 Kings 17. He's going to combat, the Lord is going to send uh, Elijah and combat this idolatry and uh, try to defeat this idolatry with the word of God. So as I said, 17.1, uh, we have entering in now Elijah. The connecting to last week, we have Ahab the wicked. Um, and the interesting part of what's going on here is that there's going to, <coughs> there's going to be a famine in the land. You can see, as we read... Uh, the the proclamation that Elijah is going to make in verse 1 where he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel is, before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. So there's not going to be any water coming whatsoever. Obviously, that's going to bring about a famine. So why would the Lord bring about that as the consequence? What is it about that? Well, Baal, which we know is... Uh, being worshipped right now by Israel because of Ahab, Baal in Canaanite mythology was the god that provides rain. And so Yahweh is going to come and say, oh, you think Baal provides rain? I'm the giver of rain, and now no more. And let them see that your Baal is not a true god at all. He's a nothing. He's a zero. There is no such thing. But there's only one true god, not one of many, but only one true god, and that's Yahweh. And he controls the rain. And so every evil, wicked practice that follows Baal, um, it's going to be something that he's going to destroy. That he doesn't permit uh, these kinds of things to happen, and so he's going to shut them down. He's going to let them know that he doesn't permit this kind of rampant worship of Baal. And so he's going to send Elijah to them to give them the 411 and let them know no more, no more Baal worship, no more, no more water coming. And so um, this is because God had already warned them that this would happen. He tells them, uh, if you worship uh, foreign gods, then I'm going to actually end the rain. It says this in Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17. So long time ago before this, the law had been given, and it said, take care lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods, lowercase, and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and no land will yield any fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. So they already knew that this would happen. They worship Baal anyway, and God says, well, remember Deuteronomy 11? I'm, cutting up the, I'm shutting down the rain. 
And so he sends Elijah, whose name means my God is Yahweh, pretty strong name right there. Elijah, my, my God is Yahweh, the Tishbite of Tishbe. No one knows where that is. That's pretty random. Uh, and he sends it to him and he says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So he sends Elijah. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, wait, what? Elijah, where, where did he come from? We've been studying the whole book here, and there hasn't been like this, this kind of previous little backstory of Elijah, seeing him, little, little Elijah, running around, growing up and being strong and, and fighting animals or whatever. Uh, it just r- runs right in to someone we've never heard before. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe, or somewhere we've never heard, just goes straight to the king Ahab and says this. There's no, and behold, in a certain city, there was a man named Elijah who loved to do these things. And then he went as a courageous man to the Lord. There's none of that. No backstory like we love in the West. Um, just no previous chapters of him, no nothing. It's just he raised, God raises him up. He comes right in on 17.1 and goes straight in. And, of course, the point is, because it's not about Elijah, right? It's about the, the, the Lord who is sending Elijah um, to deliver his word. One one commentator writes this, um, he says, For to see Elijah appear thus so suddenly reminds us that we need not to despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular success on this earth. For we may be sure that God in unexpected places has already secretly prepared his counter movement. God has always... God has always his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. God can raise up men for his service from nowhere. Therefore, the situation is never hopeless where God is concerned. Whenever evil flourishes, it is a way of superficial flourish. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there ready with his man and his movement and his plans to ensure his own cause of good, of justice, of the Lord, of Yahweh's way, will never fail. So it shouldn't surprise us that there's no backstory of evil at the rise at the top of evil. That, or, I'm sorry, no backstory of Elijah. There's no like, where, where what's going to happen? Like at any moment, God can just come at the rise and top of evil and say, oh, I've got somebody for that that you don't even know about. Here it is. Boom. Ready to go. Um, and that's the point that we first we want to see in combating and defeating idolatry. Number one is this. Let's put it up. That behold, the readiness of God to defeat evil. This means at the rise, at the tip top of anything going on in your life that's wicked or evil or sinful, um, whether it's something that you're doing or something that's happening to you, and you just look around and you're like, there's literally no way this is going to stop or be combated or anything. You should realize that the Lord totally knows this is happening. That he's absolutely aware. He's not wringing his hands. He's not caught off guard. He's always ready to defeat evil at any moment. Elijah walks right in. No one's expecting it, right? No one's expecting a confrontation of Ahab at this particular moment. We're not, the, the, the writer hasn't expected, got us ready for this. No one in Israel is ready for this. It just, Elijah walks right up to the king and says, no more rain. So he's ready to confront evil immediately. And the Lord is the same, same way with us. This means... The first thing necessary for us to combat or defeat idolatry, the first thing necessary is actually God himself. Without the Lord, it's not going to happen. And he is ready, willing, and able all the time. Without him, there is no combating or defeating idolatry. So the first thing is, with rampant sin in your life or 
terrible things happening to you, the first thing that you should know is your only hope is Jesus. Your only hope is God. He's the only one that will um, be able to bring you through it, but he's also the only one that can confront it immediately. And he here shows us that by just out of nowhere bringing in Elijah. Now, um, up until this point, as I said, we've not heard of Elijah. He has no introduction, um, but he's no slouch whatsoever. He's actually pretty awesome. If you kind of keep going forward throughout the entire Bible and kind of look back, there's some things about him that, that show that he's pretty awesome. Number one, he's in the Hall of Faith in uh, Hebrews 11. He is at the Transfiguration, like you've got Moses and Elijah at the Transfiguration, so he's, he's pretty awesome. Um, and also, he's compared to the forerunner, John the Baptist. So we know that this appearance of this guy, Elijah, from our side, being able to look back through history, that this is actually a pretty pretty studly guy that just walked on the scene out of nowhere. And so, like JTB, that's John the Baptist, uh, the forerunner, uh, this particular guy, Elijah, comes from an obscure place, he dresses similar to him, and he calls people to repentance. He's, he is pretty studly. So, the guy that Jesus calls out of the bullpen that you, nobody's ever heard of here in 1 Kings 17 to confront Ahab is a stud. He's a stud. So that just helps us understand that um, when evil is, needs to be confronted, the Lord uh, is ready, willing, and able to send and deliver us from in any means possible. And here it's going to be um, Elijah. Now there's a dearth of the word of God in Israel at the time and an abundance of the word of God within Elijah, and he believes it. But the dearth, it's, 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 it's pretty amazing. As we see, um, they're worshiping Baal. They have no foundations whatsoever of, of the word. No one's, as the king, so goes the king, so goes the people. Uh, and so that's why he walks up and says, uh, you're, you're not going to have any more rain for three years. And so um, what does Elijah do? This is what he does. He walks up, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so the second thing we can see this is uh, if we're going to combat evil, if we're going to defeat evil in our own lives, we need to be like Elijah in the sense that we also need to believe God and believe in his word. That's, that, that's what was going on in Elijah's life. He really did believe God. He really did believe his word. Um, and so he comes and delivers it to Ahab right to him. Uh, after this, after he delivers this, he goes and hides um, in verses 2 through 7 and near the brook. And then after that, he even goes to the widow's house. Um, and the easiest conclusion to think is, why does he run or and hide in verses 2 through 7? Well, probably the most obviously is because Ahab and Jezebel, not nice people at all. And so when uh, whenever he comes up and confronts them right there, it says in verse 1, he went right to Ahab and said, so whenever he makes this proclamation, likely Ahab didn't take it well. And Jezebel uh, also, and so they just want to kill him, right? They're like, we want to get you dead. And so he runs uh, and he goes and hides. And so the first kind of, but this is more really of a secondary reason. One commentator says this is really the secondary reason of running and hiding. There's actually a larger reason at play that's, that's not so easily seen, but I think it's pretty awesome as he pointed out, um, of why he leaves um, Israel and goes and hides in a, in a, basically in the middle of nowhere. It says he goes east uh, and hides himself. And the larger reason is because uh, it's showing Israel that the judgment of God has come on to Ahab in Israel. Why, why is that? 
Here's why. So Elijah represents, because he's a prophet, the word of God to the people. And the prophet has decided to leave where the people are and go off, thus taking for them what would be access to the word of God away from them. And by taking the prophet, by taking the word of God, it's actually pronouncing judgment on them because he's literally taking his word away from them. So the going and hiding is, in a sense, to preserve his life. But ultimately, kind of the larger thing is, is for Israel to realize judgment has come upon you and I'm literally taking my word away from you. And so Elijah believes his word, believes God, but he represents God's um, God's judgment towards him. As Della Davis says, Israel's judgment is the drought of the land of not having rain and the silence of the Lord. This is Israel's judgment. They're not going to have water and they're not going to have the word of God now. And so this is a pretty big deal for them to be able to, or not to be able to, to have to lose these things. And notice and submit and feel the strength of what he says. There will neither be dew nor rain in these years. In verse 1 it says, except by my word. Nothing happens without it coming by the word of the Lord. By, except by coming by the word of the Lord. And you might ask this, well... If Israel lost the word of the Lord whenever, uh, whenever Elijah left, can the same thing happen to us in the 21st century West? Can we also have that happen? Israel was dependent upon the prophet to deliver them the word of God. We, we have 450 English translations. Can we really, let, I, I knew what it, it's true. Can we actually lose um, the word of God? Because I mean, they, they were dependent on the prophet. We can just go down to the, the bookstore or type ESV in our Google. Can we also lose the word of God like them? Listen to this. I think this is pretty insightful. Walter Kaiser um, relates an incident from the days he was attending an East Coast university. A well-known Ivy League professor was conducting a special seminar on the origins of Christianity. One day, devious souls sidetracked the professor in discussing and understanding um, Romans chapter 1 through 5, which is pretty heavy work. Um, he held forth for some time carefully and eloquently, explaining the text of Romans 1 through 5, underscoring the miserable sinfulness of everyone at the sin- seminar, the necessity of believing in the Son of God, sacrifice for sins, in order that they might receive God's verdict of acquittal, and so on. Kaiser says he has rarely heard such a bold and fair treatment of that text at this Ivy League by this Ivy League professor. Kaiser said he had rarely heard such a treatment. The, the seeming tirade began to unravel students' nerves. Parenthetical, the ashtrays were apparently running over. <laughs> when, however, one of the Jewish students demands to know if the professor of this class believes this stuff, the professor scoffed. Who said anything about believing it? I'm just arguing that this is what Paul said. He had Romans... He understood Romans, he explained Romans, he disdained Romans. The point, you can have the Bible in your hand and suffer the absence of God's word. You may know a dozen translations and use several of the 58 quote-unquote study Bibles marketed for multiple evangelical cliques and yet find that for all its availability, the word of God has withdrawn from you. It's a scary affair, more so if you're not aware of it. So... In a different way, yes, we can lose the word of God as well, even though we might have, especially in today's podcast age, 
just an availability to understand almost every verse at our fingertips. We can still lose the Word of God. We can still believe God and not have the ability. Go to number two. Is it number two? Number two, Calvary. Uh, believe God's and believe His Word. So we must, as, as God's man, believe Him and believe His Word because it's possible without a doubt to lose it. Now, uh, it's not written in 1 Kings 17.1, but since the New Testament is divinely inspired, it also mentions a prayer of Elijah before he goes and talks to the king. He, he prays a prayer before he goes and talks to the king and tells him, uh, by the way, uh, for three years you won't have any water. So in James chapter 5, verse 17, uh, this is what he prays. In James chapter 5, verse 17, you should know, um, since the New Testament is divinely inspired, and it mentions that Elijah did this, even though 1 Kings doesn't record for us that Elijah did this, he did it. If the Bible has it written anywhere that he did it, he did it. So, and this is just another side note. If there's ever anything in the Old Testament that you don't understand, if anybody in the New Testament comments on that verse, you can guarantee that's the right understanding of that verse in the Old Testament is whatever the New Testament writer wrote. Anyway, that's just back to back to uh, James chapter 5. James chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Just go look at verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was a stud, but you're just like him. Um, and he, watch this. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. So it tells us in 517 that he literally prayed to God. God, I pray that it does not rain for three and a half years. And then in 17.1, it just tells us that he went to Ahab and tells him, as the, the God of Israel lives, for whom I stand, there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So he literally prayed for it to happen. And then after he prayed for it to happen, he goes to Ahab and says, this is what's going to happen. Now, he, he later on, you can see in verse 18, then he prayed again, um, and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So he prayed again that it would rain, and that happens in chapter 18. But in 17, which is not recorded for us, he literally prays that it will stop raining, and then he goes to Ahab and says, it's, gonna, it's not going to rain anymore, just so you know. Um, so that leads us to this third, this third thing. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, which means for us, for combating idolatry, number three, go ahead and put it up. God's man um, believes God's word and prays it boldly. What did he pray? What did he pray? He prayed, it tells us in James 5, 17, that it will not rain. I pray God that it doesn't rain in this land anymore. Why did he pray that it wouldn't rain? Because he didn't like Israel anymore? Why is it that he prayed that? The reason why he prayed it is because it was obviously the Lord's will because it was the Bible. It was Deuteronomy 11. What did he pray? He prayed the Bible. Lord, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 11 that it won't rain if these people are practicing idolatry. So I'm going to pray your word, Deuteronomy 11, to happen. And Lord, if I pray that, I can trust since it's your word and you said that you would do it in your word, that it will happen. This means he literally prayed the word. This means that we should also look at that and if we're going to boldly defeat and combat idolatry in our lives, that the word is the key for us in our prayer. That means 
I think every one of us, if we were honest, would say, I want to I start praying for 45 minutes every day. Like, if we were honest, we'd say, I'd love to be able to pray for 45 minutes a day. I don't know that I'll ever do it. I know that I don't do it right now. But I would really love for every day to pray for 45 minutes. And you're like, okay, but I'm running out of stuff to say after like four. So how do I do that? Here's how you do it. Read 15 verses. Then go back to verse 1 and take that verse 1 and whatever the Lord's saying, pray verse 1 to happen in your life, in your family's life, in your church's life, in your community group's life, in the city's life, etc. Then go to verse 2. And whatever it says, pray it and go all the way through there. And if you haven't reached 45 minutes yet, then start at verse 16 and go to 30. And then start at verse 16 again. Read it out loud and then pray verse 16, then pray verse 17, then pray verse 18. And you'll, you'll, you'll be astounded. By the time you're at verse 30, you've probably been praying an hour. Pray the word. Pray the word. Andrew Murray says, it is on prayer that the promises of God wait their fulfillment. The kingdom for its coming. The kingdom for its coming and the glory of God for its revelation. And so um, prayer is the fuel that um, ignites the will of God to happen in our lives. The will of God will not happen unless we pray for it. And that's that's reform. That's reform theology. <clears throat> prayer. How is that possible? Because God's ordained that you pray. That's how. But nevertheless, the Lord has ordained that we pray. We want to combat idolatry in our life, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray, 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 pray. And what do we pray? What better to pray than the word of the Lord? This is what he does. Praise the word of the Lord. And that's how we combat and defeat idolatry in our own lives, in our own city, in our own culture. Um, he also says this. Um, as the Lord, I'm still in verse 1, I know. You're thinking, how is he ever going to preach the whole sermon? It's faster once we get out of verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. That's what he says to Ahab. He walks right up to the king. I mean, this is, this is pretty amazing, right? Um, this redneck, this rough kind of redneck from Tishbe, where's that? Who knows? Um, walks right up to the king that no one really knows at this particular point that we know of and makes this proclamation. This is why Elijah is awesome. He looks right at him and says, As the Lord of God of Israel lives before whom I stand, not you, king, but the king of kings who I stand before, here's what's going to go down. That's pretty bold. That's really bold. Um, so the next way we combat idolatry is God's man not only believes and prays God's word, but God's man believes God's word and proclaims it boldly. He proclaims it boldly. He went from his prayer closet to the king's palace. He left for the prayer, and then he went straight to the king, and he boldly proclaimed it. This should be the same for us. We talk to God about people, and then we go talk to people about God. Pretty simple. We talk to God about people, we pray like crazy that he would save them, and then we go talk to people about God. So who in your life do you need to pray for and then proclaim the gospel to who in your life needs to hear the message of the good news of Jesus? What do you need to happen in your life to go boldly proclaim it to them? I know it's scary. I know for some of us, like, oh, man, that's, that's nerve-wracking. I don't know if I can do that. That makes me scared. Some of you have done it over and over and over and just said, still, <laughs> I'm waiting for someone to say, yes, I want Jesus now. Um, but it's not dependent. Our, our, our boldness or our, our saying it to them is not dependent on the fact that it happens, right? Um, Jab hacker evangelism is message delivered, not effect caused, something like that. But 
Evangelism isn't seeing that they get saved. Evangelism is telling them the gospel because it's the Lord who saves. <coughs> so we need to be bold here. We need to proclaim it bold. Just like you know, when, if we, the man of God believes God's word, and then he goes and he proclaims it boldly like he does. He walks right up to Ahab the king. I mean, this is Ahab, a pretty terrible guy, and tells him the good news. Or tells him basically the, uh, the prophecy, not the good news. Um, tells him the prophecy. The second thing that we see is this. So, um, or second, fifth thing that we see is this. I'm still in verse one, but I'm going to start branching out. Um, he's going to obey as well. So he walks up to the king. That when God told him to do that, you would imagine he's like, I don't know. That seems kind of risky. <laughs> uh, but also, he tells him in verse two, the word of the Lord came to him, and he says, "Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith." He tells him to get out of here. And what does he do in verse 5? So he went according to the word of the Lord. And then uh, in verse 10, he, in verse 9 and 10, he says, Arise now and go to Zarephath. And so in verse 10, so he arose and went. The word of the Lord comes to him and tells him to do something. And he goes. The word says, go say this to the king. He goes. Go to this brook. And he goes. Go to this widow's house. And he goes. Um, so he obeys. Number five. Number five. Combating and defeating idolatry. God's man believes God's words and obeys it promptly. He obeys it promptly. In our house, whenever we have something that we tell our children to do, um, we tell them that to do it um, all the way, right away, with a happy heart. That's that's our little thing. We tell you to do something, we want you to do it all the way, right away, with a happy heart. All the way. We don't want you to do it halfway. Right away, no delay, and while you do it, we want you to be glad in the Lord that your parents have asked you to do this thing. But here, I'm just going to talk about the right away part. Um, delayed obedience is still disobedience, right? <coughs> delayed obedience is still disobedience. And so God's man believes God's word and obeys it promptly. What's the Lord calling you right now to do? What does he want you to obey? Right now. You, you know what it is. I don't know what it is. You know what it is. He's been working in your heart for a while, wanting to you obey this. What is the Lord calling to obey, and why aren't you obeying it promptly right now? What is it that's going on? Um, whenever Mikhail was really, really, really little, I don't know, like three, she played with this toy, and the toy would tell her, um, call 911, there's an emergency. And so not the best idea to have three-year-olds play with it, because whenever they hear call 911, eventually they're going to go to the phone and call 911. They hear it. And they call, and so she hears call 911. She goes up to the phone, she picks it up, 911, and she calls the emergency. Um, and so a cop shows up at the house. Um, she was really young. A cop shows up at the house to verify, you know, hey, what's going on here? And they're like, uh, we don't know what's going on. And we found out later that McCalla had called 911 because there was an emergency and we had to tell the lady cop, hey, no, like, there's nothing going on here. Uh, she just obeyed her fire truck. Uh, the fire truck said, call 911. Um, the simple childlike obedience that happened. The, the fire truck told me to do it. I obeyed it. Childlike obedience. And what if we obeyed God like this? No questions. She didn't ask any questions. The thing said to do it. I need to do it. The word of God says to obey. I need to obey. What if our obedience was as childlike as that and as simple as that? No questions. I don't know, like the way this is going, God. No exceptions, God. We just obey. God's word says do this. God's prompting me to do this. The Holy Spirit's telling me to do this. Okay, I need to obey it right now promptly. What would that look like in our lives? I, what would the city look like if we just all of a sudden all decided promptly to obey the Great Commission? All the Christians in, in Rock Hill 
decided to obey the Great Commission promptly. I think it would look a lot different. A lot different. As Vody would say, if you can't say amen, you got to say ouch. Um, Vody's good. Anyway, uh, so now we're moving into the text here. So we see in verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith. Um, so you would drink from the brook that I have commanded you and the ravens to feed you. So he went and did according to the Lord. And he lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Um, there, was no, there was no rain into the land. And then it says in verse 8 um, that the Lord came to him and said, Now go to Zarephath. As soon as the brook dried up, he goes to Zarephath, um, which is uh, basically Gentile land, um, which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. But behold, I have commanded a widow to feed you. So I've commanded the, the ravens to feed you. And whenever the brook runs out, uh, you go to the other place and I've commanded a widow to feed you. It's all going to work out for you. Um, so he goes there and eventually we've read it. He, God causes the flower and the oil to continue to day by day multiply. And um, the widow and her son and Elijah are fed continually um, through that. And so what we can gather from verses really 2 down to 16 is that um, number 6. God's man, the person that God is using, is being preserved by God until this man's work is done. That's what's, that's what's happening here. As long as Elijah has work to do, God's going to keep him alive. There's no doubt in Israel a remnant that God is also preserving, that God is also keeping alive. They have to live with Ahab and Jezebel right now in that uh, idol-infested city. But as long as God has work for them to do, he's going to keep them alive. They don't go out to the wilderness with Elijah. They stay in the kingdom under the wrath, uh, bad kingship of, of Ahab and, and Jezebel. But nevertheless, he's keeping um, those who he still has work to be done alive. That's what he's doing with Elijah. Um, what's true of both the people that are still Ahab and Elijah is that God's preserving them until their time on earth is done with the work that he has. As George Whitfield says it this way, I am immortal until my work is finished. And once my work is finished, that's it. Um, one commentator's name's Vant Veer. Vant with, a, with, an, with an apostrophe. Pretty amazing. V-A-N apostrophe T. He says this, Elijah's life had to be preserved and that's what's going on here. God's preserving him with the raven and the widow, um, keeping him alive because he still has ta more tasks to do. Elijah's life had to be preserved for his task had not yet been completed. Until his work was done, um, God would see to it that it was preserved. That's the comfort of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord promises that we are preserved until our work is done. And God's going to preserve Elijah in a very unexpected way with um, filthy ravens which is kind of gross, and a widow. Not gross, but just like unexpected, right? An unexpected uh, widow. And you think, okay, ravens are pretty disgusting. What's the deal with the widow? Well, the widow, it's not good news for, for him to hear that the widow is going to keep you alive. Um, <clears throat> ravens are disgusting. They're scavengered in the sky. They, you know, they're going to bring him, it says, this is pretty gross. Think about this, right? The ravens are going to bring him meat every day. What are they bringing him? What kind of roadkill is he getting every day? Like, don't look at it. Just 
cook it well done and try to choke it down, right? And so, uh, but nevertheless, watch what it does. It's bringing it to him twice per day, uh, once in the morning, once in the evening. <coughs> um, just cook it, right? The widow is a different story. She's not gross, obviously, like a, a raven. It's just bad news. You're going to be preserved by a widow. That's bad news. Widows, um, don't think of a modern-day widow who can still kind of, even though they have a terrible story likely that's kind of happened in their life, it's not the same as a modern-day widow. Modern-day widows is a desperate situation, but it's not a death sentence. Widows back here were likely a death sentence. Uh, as Dale Davis says, if one could choose, ravens sounded like the more dependable choice than, than widows. Widows back then weren't going to live very long. Um, it was just an entirely different culture. And so God's going to use unclean ravens and unlikely widows to provide and sustain his servant. God, God's man is preserved by God until his work is done. So what are the unlikely provisions of God preserving you at this moment that you're just oblivious to? There are things that are preserving us right now and sustaining us that we might even not be totally aware of. We should stop and think about those things and be thankful for them. We should thank the Lord for those things. Um, he's keeping us alive to combat idolatry in our own life and work for the Great Commission right now um, by amazing means, and we should be thankful for it. We should be amazed by it. <clears throat> and he tells him in verse 9, um, we, we talked about the brook, we talked about the, the ravens, and how he's being hid there uh, until the brook runs out, being brought bread and meat um, in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. <clears throat> We're going to come back to that in just a second, because uh, there's something in there that we want to make sure we see. But it's similar to what's going on with the widow, and I'm just going to take them together at the same time. And he tells him to arrive and go to Zarephath. Zarephath. This is, this is between Tyre and Sidon. Um, this is actually in Jezebel's father's region or Jezebel's father's domain. As Dale Davis says, <laughs> Elijah's headed to Baalsville in Gentile land. This is, this is the middle of the worst place to maybe go. And so he's going to someone that's likely not a convert. She's not. There's some commentators that say she's a Christian or a follower of God, however you want to say it, for the Old Testament. But she's likely not. I don't think she is. Uh, when he arrives... Um, She's, I don't think she is. If you look at verse 12, uh, it says this. As she said, as the Lord your God lives. So I don't think she's a believer at this time. We close the chapter with her saying, um, I know that you're a man of God. The word of the, word of the Lord in your mouth is true. So we close the chapter with her seemingly um, being what would be a follower of Yahweh. But at the time when Elijah arrived, she's not a follower of Yahweh. That's why she says, the Lord, your God. And during this time, Elijah is going to give her, um, through interacting with her, opportunities to see how God is faithful to provide and really to be able to trust God. That's why um, when he says, you know, hand me your, your food uh, and she doesn't have any more, that's an opportunity for her to trust God. Like, okay, I don't have any more and you're telling me you want some. If I do this, uh, I'm going to have to trust that this Yahweh guy you, you worship is going to do something. So he gives her an opportunity to trust God and see that actually God's going to sustain her, like which he does. It says in verse 16, um, the, the jar of the flour was not spent, neither did the, joy, the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that was spoke, spoken by Elijah. So you can just picture it, though, when he first gets there, right? Elijah asks her for food, and she says, uh, well, I mean, look what she says in verse 12. 
Uh, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, and a little um, oil in a jug. Now I'm gathering, I mean, this is so sad. I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. It's just like the saddest thing in the world. We, we have our last meal. This is likely the last thing we'll ever eat. We're going to eat it and then starve to death. And you want my food. And so uh, he's like, notice what he says. He says, yeah, that's what I want. As a matter of fact, um, since you just told me you're going to eat that and die, uh, first dibs, shotgun on the first bite. Could you bring me that first bite first? And then you can have what's left over. I mean, that's literally what he says um, in verse 13. Uh, Don't fear. Go, but first make me some cake and bring it to me. And afterwards, you can have the rest for yourself and your son. Um, I mean, that's pretty astounding, right? It seems heartless, right? No, not really. Not not heartless. Um, he tells her in verse 12, do not fear. So this is a, it's a means of compassion for him to say, you don't, you don't need to fear. Don't be nervous. Uh, and then he tells her in verse 14, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. In 14, the jar of flour will not be spent. The, the jug of oil will not be empty. And so he's telling her, um, give everything you have to God. And he'll give you everything you need. Give everything you have to God. And he'll give you everything you need. So, number seven. You can put, go ahead and put it up. Number seven. I'll just look at it. God's man goes to the hard place to proclaim the word of God. He's going straight into, as we said, Balesville and Gentile land. Um, and he's going to give this lady who's not a follower of God an opportunity to... Um, follow after and he says to her this is pretty astounding give me everything that you have that's what God's saying and then he'll give you everything you need now what doesn't happen is there's not an airdrop of 20 bags of flour and 20 jugs of oil (coughs) to the door at that moment She, she just walks out and says oh yeah you're right here's everything we need boom we're in we're in for good right she but that's not what happens um instead um, every morning, a fresh episode of the faithfulness of Yahweh and his promise is, is happening. Another opportunity for her to trust God. So notice what happens. Um, a big airdrop doesn't happen. But instead, as she went and did what Elijah said, she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty. So every day, she would have to go back to it and see, well, I'm going to use it. There's no big airdrop, and then the next day I'm going to come back, and then there it is again. So it wasn't, uh, well, here it all is. I'm good for days and days and days. Instead, a fresh opportunity every single morning to her again to to trust God for this day. Just like with the ravens. I'm not going to just bring in a a bunch of birds or, or, or bread and drop it all over you, Elijah, and you're going to be fine for a while. It's, I'm going to supply you right now in the morning. That's it. That's all you're going to get. And then I'll supply you again in the evening. And that's all you're going to get. And the next morning we'll supply you again in the morning, over and over and over and over. And so, as Spurgeon says, God is pleased to give some of his servants in the bulk, but there are many others, and I think this is the standard, who only live from hand to mouth. And perhaps, though not best for the flesh, it is best for faith. When we, um, For we are apt when mercies come regularly, to forget where they came from. And so it's mercy and supply and sustainment for the day. Preservation for the day. 
And then what do we do? We thank the Lord for it. And then we ask the Lord again for it the next day. Rather than, as he says, forgetting where the mercies come from. It's new mercies every day. And God provides for them new pancakes every day. I'm I'm, I'm presuming it's pancakes um, that they were eating every day. Um, Because I love pancakes. So back to verse 17. So what happens? Uh, Verse 17 uh, he's been there for a while, and then the, the lady's son's going to become ill. Uh, after this, the son, the woman, the mistress of the house became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And he said to Elijah, um, What have you against me, O man of God? She said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring me my sins, remembrance to cause me my death and my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took her arms and carried her up to the upper chamber. I, didn't, I, I don't have this on the screen. But if you know what a, uh, a chiastic structure is, this is this 17 to 24 is like a classic chiastic structure. We have A and A prime, and then B and B prime, C and C prime, and the C and C prime are where the Lord, he's crying out to the Lord in verse 20, and he's crying out to the Lord in verse 21. It's, it's like a classic uh, Hebrew chiastic structure, nevertheless. Uh, but to, you, it's, it's important for you to know that because the center of the chiastic structure is 20. He cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord. That's the center, and you work your way back out. So the, it's helping us see that the most important part of 17 through 24 is him crying out to the Lord. We know that I know that you can raise this man from the dead, this boy from the dead. I'm going to cry out to you. I'm going to depend on you and ask that you are going to do it. I'm going to rely totally on you, God. I'm going to cry out to you. You're my only hope. You can do it, the Lord. I'm totally relying upon you, which is the eighth thing. God's man totally relies on the God who raises the dead. He cries out to him. All of his trust, all of his hope is on God. The goodness of God has, been, has come into question by this woman. Um, he had come and he had saved the widow and he had saved her son. And now, after he had done that sometime later, uh, it looks like the son is going to die and not be saved by God. And so the lady's wondering, wait a second, I thought the goodness of God was to save us, and now my son's going to die. Is God really good? And so Elijah is going to teach her that she must rely on the God who raises the dead. Now this story is not messianic in that it's pointing to uh, Christ's resurrection. It's more of a, a sign where it's pointing to other places where other people are raised, like Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, etc. Uh, it's more like that. It's showing us that we trust in the God that can, has the power to raise people from the dead, which means he has the power to raise us from the dead from our sin. Um, death does not defeat Yahweh. Death doesn't have the final say-so in regard to what Yahweh's doing. And so what does Elijah do? As we see, it's the most important part of this little section, 20 and 21. He cries out to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord. And what does God do? He answers whenever he cries out to the Lord. God puts on display his power to raise uh, from the dead. And eventually, again, I mean, this boy will grow older, he'll become a man, and he'll die again. And so, uh, it's not that he's raised him to dead forever, like the Messiah has been. Instead, it's an opportunity for them to see that the Lord has power over death. Now, interestingly enough, I want you to notice, as chapter 17 ends, as I said, the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God, that the word of the Lord is in your mouth and is truth. Notice how chapter 16 ends. Chapter 16 ends with Israel, um, the people of God, despising the word of God, despising what they're supposed to be doing. And chapter 17 ends with a Gentile woman embracing the word of God. 
demonstrating to us just how far gone Israel is, but still how merciful God is to save those who will trust in Him. And so, uh, I want to I want to conclude this kind of whole section by looking at a very similar story uh, to what we just looked at. So, in Luke chapter seven, um, and there's a lot of a uh, lot of similarities between Elijah's life and and Jesus's. But I just want to show you one little story here. In Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 11, um, it says this. Uh, this is when Jesus raises a widow's son. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, only uh, the son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And he um, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier. And the bearer stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. They say this because this is very similar to Elijah. And this report came about him spread throughout the whole um, of Judea and all the surrounding countries. And so here there's, there's this story of uh, two widows and their sons, one from Zarephath and one from Nain. Um, and there's some similarities. Both widows are stricken with grief because they have lost their sons. Both Elijah uh, and Jesus are going to perform what would be an unclean act by touching the dead body. Elijah, when he goes over and touches the dead body, crying out, and Jesus, when he comes up and touches the dead body, touches the coffin. Um, both of these things are unclean acts in order to bring about life. Um, both men witness their sons coming back to life. Uh, it says in uh, Elijah, sorry, First Kings, that uh, after that happened, he brought the child back down to his mother. And here it says that Jesus um, handed the child to his mother. So both received their sons back from him. And uh, after this, both believe after the miracle has happened, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, or God has visited us, etc. So there's a lot of similarities. And so, as Kent Hughes says, when it comes to resurrections, um, there is a difference between these two, right? Uh, the difference is, Elijah is not Jesus. So what does he have to do? He has to go to God and cry out to the Lord, and cry out to the Lord, stretching himself over the child three times, and crying out to the Lord happened. But what does Jesus have to do? He just has to say, get up. Showing the difference between these two. While there are similarities between Jesus and Elijah, it points us, these two stories kind of juxtaposed together, shows us that ultimately Jesus is the truer and better Elijah. That he's not um, just a prophet, but he is, and he, he, Elijah has to go to God and ask for help. Jesus is God. And so the greater Elijah, I'm just going to um, close by reading this amazing insight that Tony says, uh, Tony Maria says, the greater Elijah knows what it's like to live on earth and to have every word proceed out of, out of the mouth of God. He was called out of obscurity. He's just opposing Elijah and Jesus. He was called out of obscurity to confront unbelief. He cared for a widow. He raised people from the dead. His prayers were effectual. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Some even thought that Jesus was Elijah and one can see why. Elijah was an end-time figure and a miracle-working prophet. Jesus was too, but he was more than that. Jesus, unlike Elijah, never sinned. Jesus lived and died, finishing his course, 
taking judgment upon himself. Instead of pouring it out on those that deserve it, he was raised from the dead and is now interceding for us all. Jesus saves. Jesus' work is now what sustains us. And Jesus now is praying for us right now. May the life of Elijah inspire us to pray and live faithfully. And may his life point us to the greater source of hope, the truer and better prophet, the ultimate mediator, namely Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you that all texts point us to Christ. Sometimes they're uh, super easy to see and sometimes they're even a little bit more difficult. But nevertheless, they all point us to Jesus. And so we thank you how the life of Elijah does this as well. We pray, God, that as we go into the Lord's Supper, we think on the fact that you did give your body and blood and shed it for the forgiveness of our sins, that we would be absolutely overjoyed by this. And that um, as we think on the good news of the gospel that saves us and sets us free from our sin and sends us out to be used by you to fight idolatry in our lives, and it only happens because of you, that we would give you the glory for it. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.